Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Ebooks and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Matt Dawson about his new book, Social Theory for Alternative Societies, which is published by Palgrave Millen. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking with Matt Dawson, who's a lecturer in sociology at the University of Glasgow in the UK, about his new book, Social Theory for Alternative Societies. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. This is is a really kind of timely book, I think, given that social theory is one of the things that almost all social science students engage with. But there are kind of a number of critiques uh, of social theory that have been kind of floating around various, you know, blogs and, and, and conferences, position papers and stuff like this. And so I'm really interested to know a bit about what brought you to the study of social theory and particularly what brought you to the idea of Social Theory for Alternative Societies. Okay. Well, I mean, the book was actually inspired by wanting to teach a particular subject. When I was doing my degree and my master's at the University of Essex, I was taught quite often the Becker Goldner debate, which is part of chapter one of the book. And without going into too much detail on that, the Becker Goldner debate, collection of three articles, both of them start with the position that being normative and speaking of values is something that sociologists will do, have done, and sort of must do. But they differ quite violently, in one case, around what that means. And for Becker, this is about being on the side of groups, you know, standing up for particular groups, the underdog, in his view. Whereas Goldner argues, actually, that's quite an almost conservative way of imagining sociology, and sociologists need to be on the side of values rather than groups. And I always loved this debate, because it was the debate that I was taught where we move beyond the should sociology be value-free, should it be normative debate, to something broader about well, if you say that sociology should be normative and speak of values, it's the beginning of a broad discussion of something else. So I wanted to teach that, but I knew, well, you can't just teach a class, it has to be part of a course. So I thought, well, I'll teach a course which is about starting with these debates and then looks at how sociologists have offered values, that offered ideas for better alternative society. When I was designing the course and trying to think who could I include on it, one way I was thinking about it, I was like, well, I'll go and look at the books that have been written, which talk about the alternatives that sociologists and social theorists have offered. And I went to the library and I found that that book didn't exist. So I thought to myself, huh, well, I could just write the book when I teach the course. And that's really how the book came to be in it. I wrote it because the book didn't exist and I wanted to read the book a few years ago. So that's how it came to be. The kind of the central kind of big uh, idea, I think, in, in the book is this sociological alternatives um, yeah. concept. And quite early on, um, I think it's sort of the first or second page, you talk about what a sociological alternative is and you identify kind of three parts, the way that it's about identifying a particular problem or set of problems, suggesting an alternative, and then crucially kind of justifying um, why that alternative 
um, works, why it solves the problem, why it's kind of, um, I suppose, a, a better approach than, than than what we have already. So I wonder if you could kind of unpack those three elements that make up the sociological alternative. Yeah, I think, as you say, you know, you need all three and all three of them have to draw upon a sociological element. So initially, as you say, there's the critique. It's about identifying a problem with society which draws upon a sociological perspective. So questions of inequality, of power, of alienation, of patriarchy, you know, the type of things I've discussed in the book and which we'll discuss in a while. Then that has to be the sort of persisting of an alternative. And that alternative can sometimes start out small scale. So it can be a sort of policy or a minor, what's initially may seem a minor change, but importantly, that is seen to change society more broadly. So although the alternative may seem small, it leads to a broader change. And then if you say that has to be justified, there has to be some link between that. And the example I use in the introduction to the book is about uh, tuition in education and the fact that sociologists are well aware fact that children from working class backgrounds are less likely to succeed in education, partly because they start out at a lower position than their middle class peers. So a social alternative to that may be we provide private educate private tuition, sorry, to children from working class backgrounds learn to catch up. Now that requires each step. You have to be aware of the inequality, you have to provide the alternative and then justify it. We may disagree about whether that's a good alternative, but I think it demonstrates all three points of that and the way in which each of them relies upon a sociological perspective each step. And also together, they make a real sort of sociological perspective on what an alternative society should be. The other kind of framing point for the book is is what you described as, as the, the debate about the kind of appropriate orientation for uh, for social theory around around values and because you, you've kind of sketched that i wonder if we might move into um some of the uh, examples that form the bulk of the book so we yeah. might kick off with what what the kind of sociological alternative of marx is um which which is the second chapter yeah yeah i mean marx is a really interesting one um because you know of all the people in the book is most identified with an alternative, you know, we think of communism and that's what Marx is. But of course, he doesn't really talk about it, that the alternative isn't really there. When I teach my students this, I show them the picture of, you know, the collective volumes of Marx and Engels that runs to, well, 54 books now, something like that. And I say, well, of those 54 huge 400-page books, maybe half of one of them is devoted to discussing communism. But I think really there are some suggestions, obviously, and I discuss in the book what those suggestions are, but I think really to get at what Marxist sociological alternative is, it's really useful to begin with this idea of what he calls the universal man, this term of universal individuals we might not prefer. Where one of the issues with capitalism is the way in which it creates division of labour and the way in which it forces us into particular jobs and particular occupations and that leads to the forms of alienation from our creative species beings Marx puts it we repeat the same task again and again or animal like in our productive activities he puts it at one point and it closes off the abilities we have as a human being to be productive and to operate in many different realms and therefore a fundamental part of what Marx's vision with communism when it comes to sketch it is is this idea of allowing for this universal ability to exist a way of overcoming the division of labour and allowing for multiple fields of activity. So this leads to the famous quote uh, from the German ideology where he, 
Ian Engel's sketches idea of someone waking up and fishing in the morning, hunting in the afternoon, criticising after dinner without ever becoming a hunter, a fisherman, or a critic. And although that's a bit of flourish and there's controversy about how true that should be, I think it indicates one of the key elements of what Marx's alternative would be. And this sort of is why socialisation of the means of production is so significant to Marx's vision of communism, because you have to socialise the means of production and have them readily available to allow people to engage in these different activities. And also it's why, you know, one of the really sort of surprising facts when you turn to Marx's alternative, at least from the current day, is that Marx is in favour of child labour. He says the desire to end child labour is an empty and pious wish to use his terms from Das Kapital. And the reason he's in favour of child labour is he says, well, the problem at the moment is that schools train you in a particular skills, academic skills, and that's fine, and obviously Marx value those, but it neglects the practical, what we might now call vocational elements, and children need those as well to become universal individuals, and that's why he supported the continuation of child labour, although he did say it should continue in its current form. So I think all those elements come together to indicate why Marx's sociological alternative of communism took the form at least in the suggestions Marx has, that it did. It's fundamentally about allowing humans to engage in their productive activity across many different spheres and not being tied down by the alienating elements of the division of labour. And for me, the other elements we think of in Marx's alternative socialisation and means production, the overcoming of class boundaries, etc., all trace back to this idea of what he thinks humans are and should be. The next chapter is about Durkheim and obviously the kind of the usual way of framing um, social theorists is the contrast between Marx, Durkheim and then sometimes Weber, sometimes Simmel, depending on um, how courses are structured. But obviously it's not the usual way to frame them as offering competing visions of sociological alternatives. Um, So I wonder if you could talk through the the differences in their um, sociological alternatives. Yeah, I mean, there's two differences which I think are really important. One difference is that I would actually argue, at least if you look at their social alternatives, that Durkheim is more radical than Marx, at least in terms of being clear about what should happen and also the immediacy of it, whereas Marx is postponing this image to a long future, you know, not happen immediately. Durkheim saying, we can do it right now. And the other difference, of course, reflects what I just said, which is still the division of labour. Whereas one of the keys of Marx's social alternative is overcoming this division of labour, Durkheim, it's about not only continuing it, but in some ways enhancing it. So one of the things that Durkheim is particularly critical of is how the key values of society are blunted. They're not allowed to be realised. And this is Durkheim's starting point. We have to realise what's the key value of contemporary society. To him, of course, it's individualism, not in the sense of selfishness, but in the sense of that you know, what we now call human rights. Every citizen has a right to happiness, to use the term that comes up in the American Declaration of Independence, and also to have the opportunity to follow their goals, to be respected. They have rights and also have duties, but they have rights, etc. And Durkheim argues, well, that hasn't been allowed to happen in contemporary society. We have, for example, unjust contracts. Capitalists can strike contracts at terms favourable to them in ways that workers can't, and they have to submit to the demands of capitalists. It creates an unjust situation. The workers, Durkheim says at one point, 
you know, are aware of the fact they're being exploited in this relationship. And one of the key reasons is Durkheim's inheritance. Inheritance, as he puts it, just doesn't make any sense in a society based around individualism. It's unjust. Also, part of this division of labour, Durkheim argues, is the way in which that as our jobs have become more specialised, so you and I as lecturers have certain morals attached to our job, which are different to plumbers, which are different to members of the clergy, which are different to insurance salesmen, and so on and so forth. These morals haven't established themselves. So the moral codes which guide these professions haven't developed. In their absence, we get what Durkheim calls the amoral character of economic life. Making money becomes a key guide to our activity. And therefore, he advocates what he calls the corporations. Bodies made up of well, democratically elected bodies of occupations. So there'd be a lecturer's corporation, there would be a plumber's corporation, so on and so forth. And these bodies are there to establish the moral codes for those groups, rule on things such as wages, so who gets paid what, develop ideas of what duties and what rights you have in your job, and also to decide things like what we would now call industrial strategy, so what should this group of people be doing in that job. So I think Durkheim is a really interesting contrast to Marx because they're different, but not in ways that they're, going back to what you're saying, they're often presented as where Durkheim is imagined as fundamentally concerned with order and consensus, whereas Marx is concerned with conflict. That's not the divide between them. The divide between them is with factors such as division of labour, the immediacy of change, and I won't go into it because it's a broader discussion, but what socialism is or should be. I was, I was saying earlier about the kind of this would be the moment uh, in a social theory uh, or a history of social theory discussion to be like, and now along comes Max Weber. But you don't yeah. do that. You use uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' critique yeah. of a variety of social settlements, uh, particularly in, in America, but also more more widely um, as your your sort of third starting point for social theory for alternative societies. And I'm, I'm really interested to hear, um, hear about that because obviously it, it does break with um, the usual kind of triptych of, of great white uh, male thinkers who, who start off social theory. Yeah, I mean... I, I shouldn't give myself too much praise because Weber is, of course, in the first chapter I talk about value freedom. But I think the thing that's significant about Du Bois in this sense is you know, this increasing push that there is at the moment to include Du Bois as one of the classical theorists. And I think, you know, that's probably well earned. And I think increasingly that is becoming the case now. And I think that particularly for this type of book where it's not trying to present, you know, social theory as a field, but trying to say, how a social theory discussed alternatives to boys is really important to have and really central. But also what's interesting about the boys is the way in which it changes over time. So I say in that chat that actually if you're interested in thinking about the boys talking about alternative societies, there's really two Du Boises. There's the early Du Bois, the Du Bois sort of from 1880 up to roughly sort of 1905, 1910, who has resting behind him a certain sort of almost elitist position whereby Racism exists for via cultural differences. He talks in the conclusion, the afterwards of the Philadelphia Negro, about how ignorance emerges on both sides of the racial divide in the US, on the white side and also to the side of African Americans. And this needs to be overcome. And the way this can be overcome is by developing what he calls a talented tenth. The leading men, as he puts it at one point, of the African American community 
or Du Bois' term, the race, and allowing them to develop through particular forms of schooling. In doing so, they develop particular forms of culture, which become part of the broader civilization of America, which Du Bois is very clear should not be overcome. So again, Philadelphia Negro talks about how just because, you know, African-Americans have been victims of this tragedy of slavery doesn't give them the right to request that the whole of society be overthrown. But then as Du Bois moves on in his life, he becomes a lot more critical of that position. Also, he argues that things in the first half of the 20th century could fundamentally change. And actually, we needed more focus on the economic elements. And the sort of Du Bois, particularly from the 1930s onwards, becomes more Marxist in his view than a book such as my, what I think is Du Bois' greatest work, Black Reconstruction in America, where he talks about the legacy of the Civil War as being fundamentally economic, that the Civil War began to enforce capitalism on the southern states, to open up the markets for the northern bourgeoisie. And although initially after the end of the Civil War, there was a process of African Americans being engaged in the reconstruction of America and doing great things for Du Bois, even hence at one point it's akin to Marx's dictatorship proletariat, Ultimately, there at that point been a struggle to, and he actually called it at one point a second civil war, to reduce African Americans to the condition close to slavery, whereby what had previously been class solidarity between white southerners and African American southerners and other, had broken down along the lines of race. And therefore, the boys in this period argues actually what should happen is a segregated economy. And he argues, well, we're already segregated, we should put, as he puts it, we should put rhyme and reason under that segregation and create a separate cooperative economy in the African-American community, which develops. And importantly, Du Bois argues in a way that wasn't uncommon in the 1940s that since capitalism is beginning to collapse, this will be a sort of example. He would say at one point African-Americans can teach an example to the world on what the economy should look like. So Du Bois is interesting not just because it's a very different alternative and essentially his starting point of racism is different to that of Marx and Durkheim, but also in the way in which he responds to events and that the first early Du Bois would not agree with the Black Du Bois and vice versa. So he's a very interesting character because of the length of his life and also his moves between activism and academia. The book sort of shifts gear a little bit after those initial uh, excursions into what we might think of as a sort of classical uh, yeah. social theory and becomes slightly more thematic, thinking through questions of democracy, everyday life, um, debates about uh, pornography, feminism, cosmopolitanism and, and utopia. And I wonder if we, we might pick up uh, a couple of those to give the sense of both yeah. how the book, I guess, kind of differs from... Um, its initial treatment of, of classical social theorists um, becomes more thematic, but also because actually your your treatments of some of those topics is is really fascinating. So I guess one you know really good place to start is with the fifth chapter and and the question of how sociology can make society more uh, more democratic. Yeah, this is actually my favourite chapter in the book. I think, and one of the reasons is because I think one of the things that I discovered more and more in researching this book was the sort of way in which sociology very readily has common ideas about what it does. And one of these is that sociology is pro-democracy. So I highlight in the book, you know, 
sociological imagination, a book that every first-year sociology student is encouraged to read at some point, makes very clear the goal of sociology is to make society more democratic. And there's many examples, one of which we'll discuss later on, I'm sure, public sociology, which also draw upon this argument. But what does it mean? What does it mean to make society more democratic? Does that mean that sociology is in favour of proportional representation? Does it mean that simply sociology is about developing public debate, in which case that's more of a Republican rather than a Democratic? Republican in the classic sense, not Republicans in Donald Trump, obviously. Um, Republican rather than democratic order? Does it mean that sociology is pro-direct democracy, industrial democracy, so on? So I've always found that a bit problematic, and I think that the examples I draw upon in that chapter of George Herbert Mead and Karl Mannheim try to indicate the difficulty of imagining that relationship. So for Mead, the way in which sociology can assist in making society more democratic is through the development of bottom-up mechanisms that include people within democracy, which for him is fundamentally about forms of communication which allow for groups to realise their problems. And I highlight in the book that a lot of this is what Mead actually did in the Chicago of his time. And I won't go into all the examples, but to draw out one of the examples, he helped found the Immigrants Protected League in Chicago, where Chicago at this point is experiencing a large amount of immigration, not just from the southern states, but also from parts of Europe, most probably Ireland. And one of the issues that happens here is that migrants arrive in Chicago to be exploited, he only says, by companies and make profit off them and the city offers little but as Mead once put it the police to keep them in their place and also he notes that many women who arrive in the city are ending up being trafficked in select trade so the immigrants protectively sets up this office opposite Chicago Central Station with the purpose of having its workers on the platform when the trains come in to bring the migrants in to help them get settled to find homes to find jobs to uh, become politically organised to protect people who may otherwise have been sold into the sex trade and really to give migrants to the city an opportunity to engage in this very sort of bottom-up process of democracy. Now, Carl Mannheim, on the other side, has a very different view of democracy. For him, democracy is about elections and fundamentally about having governance done for the common good by elected officials. And one of the things that he is quite critical of is the way in which the society which he faces has become too laissez-faire, what we might now call liberal in a sense of anything goes. And he argues that in ways and language very similar to what David Cameron used when he was Prime Minister, that we need to have common British values that must be established, fair play, decency, etc. And needs to be, to be spread throughout society. The media should be used as propaganda. Education should be for obedience to develop these common values. And for him, sociologists are important in two ways. First of all, they're the groups who can tell the rulers how to, in his words, manipulate people to fit into these uh, these values. And also, in Mannheim's alternative, sociologists sort of become kings in the sense that the Oxbridge education, which Mannheim is very positive of, speaks about how it helped you know Britain rule an empire with skill, as he puts it at one point will allow for the development of a new ruling class who are aware of these common values and need to develop them and the way to use these mechanisms to develop society. Now, both Mead and Mannheim would say, well, we're further in democracy, but as that brief sketch hopefully gives out, they're completely incompatible. Like, you can't, you can't have both of them. They fundamentally have very different views, not just on democracy, but on what sociologists should do. And I think 
that story is, and you know, Mead is just a fascinating figure, and one of the benefits of writing this book was reading more about what George Herbert Mead did. He's the greatest puppet sociologist ever. Um, but they really forced us to sort of question these ready assumptions I think we draw between sociology and democracy in this case. You touched on questions about migration, women, um, and the kind of, yeah, you, me- you mentioned public sociology towards the end there, but perhaps the big absence, maybe actually in any of the uh, the thinkers we, we've been talking about uh, so far, has been about women and the kind of... Yeah. Uh, the place of women, whether that's to do with uh, the nature of labour, uh, yeah. work versus the domestic, or in, in the seventh chapter, the specific campaigns and theorising of people like Dworkin and McKinnon uh, yeah. around pornography. So what, what's the kind of feminist uh, sociological alternative? Well, I think the thing that's particularly significant about the feminist critique here is the way in which it would explain that that sort of ignoring of women that you've mentioned in the sense that if you think about the alternatives we've discussed, they've all been public, you know, as you mentioned, they've been about labour, they've been about migration, they've been about forms of work, etc, etc, whereas, of course, feminist critique points out that the way in which patriarchy makes itself felt most keenly historically and so it's in contemporary is in the private sphere. And this is where I think the feminist critiques I draw upon in that chapter, so I'm not going to discuss it here, but one of them is about the campaign to make housework paid labour. But as you mentioned, the campaign around pornography are particularly significant because what Mick Dawkin, as uh, Angela Dawkin and Catherine McKinnon are often collectively referred to as, what they're arguing there is that pornography becomes, as Dawkin puts it, the DNA of patriarchy. It's a thing that allows men to continue their dominance. The, the key elements of pornography are about male dominance over women and female availability for male satisfaction become part of everyday life. And there's recently it should have been discussed in terms of everyday pornography, which tries to talk about this. And the, the problem with pornography is not just it's in and of itself in the sense that they see it as oppressive and exploitative, but also the way in which it spreads these patriarchal values throughout society via sex and via the mechanisms of sex. And this is where, you know, McKinnon and Dawkins' campaigns have a law established which, although a civil law which allowed people to claim damages from pornography had its end goal, the sort of banning or removing of pornography was so interesting because it was an attempt to try to overcome those things and the law had a very rocky experience. It passed in some US states before being ruled unconstitutional on the grounds of free, free speech. A very limited form of it was passed in Canada and it was advocated in various other places including Britain. But then what becomes really interesting, I think, about the feminist perspective for a discussion of sociological alternatives is that probably only Marxism is a competitor in terms of the way in which it's concerned with discussing questions of social change, you know, that ultimately social change is needed in this particular perspective. So the best criticisms of McKinnon and Dawkins are other feminist writers, and I talk about some of them, Jean Strasson, the Eichmann, broadly liberal grounds, you know, the issue here is that pornography can have positive impacts and actually trusting a patriarchal state to enforce the ban doesn't work. And this paints the position of McKinnon and Dawkins paints women as vulnerable people in need of protection from the law. The Marxist criticisms, actually, pornography is, you know, not the cause, but a symptom of a lot of patriarchy, which would be overcome by form of socialism. Then more contemporary writers, more sex positive writers who are trying to highlight problems underlying McKinnon and Dawkins' position really leads to a really fascinating conversation about 
what is what's the cause of patriarchy? Like, what are we getting to here? What's the key thing that's happening? And I think you know it shows the way in which actually the position of McKinnon and Dawkins on pornography, whether you think pornography should be banned or not, is not a be all and end all. Ultimately, we need to go further and we need to think further about what patriarchy is and engage with some other ideas on it. I suppose one one way of thinking about kind of social change that maybe is less grounded in practical demands for law changes, but has equal um, sort of scope for social transformation is the idea of utopia. And um, you give, you know, the kind of practical example of universal basic income, but you also sketch um, the kind of broader engagements that sociology has had with utopia. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, this connection is, really interesting there's two key writers i talk about now eric Cullen Wright, his project of rural utopias which very briefly has been based around the idea that you should find things which exist today hence the real which if scaled up and expanded could indicate a broader socially just in rights terms a marxist socialist society hence the utopian element but for me the more interesting person is ruth levitas who i spent a lot of the chapter discussing who Really just an amazing sociologist, but Phil probably hasn't gotten the respect she deserves, particularly in British sociology. And a lot of writing she's done quite recently on Utopia, including her magnificent 2013 book, Utopia's Method, in which she says, you know, at the heart of it, one of the things rested behind sociology is a sort of utopian element. So she highlights how the many sociologists were concerned with inequality, the sociologists like Durkheim, who talk, or Beck, who I discussed in this book, who talk about a world as it should be. So, you know, for Durkheim, organic solidarity, for Beck, a sort of methodological cosmopolitan world, and then compare it to the current day and see the current day as lacking, a fundamentally utopian, but resting behind that, there's a vision of an alternative world. People who talk about inequalities as sociologists do it because they don't think they're natural, they're open to discussion and debate. And therefore, part of her argument is that we should be very clear about this utopian element and that this utopia rests upon, similar to my free-scale model of social alternatives, rests upon having a critique at the start of the elements of contemporary society which are problematic, then engaging in what she calls the imaginary reconstruction of society and comparing this alternative society to the current day to see where the current day is lacking. And as you mentioned, both of them put a lot of emphasis on the basic income in this, which is probably the most popular sociological alternative. And I won't go too far into it, but discuss some of the positives that are seen to be attached to the basic income. It's seen to devalue the importance of work, give us more space to do things like caring activities, which are not paid, perhaps lead to greater gender gender equality, sorry, in terms of having less responsibility on women to work part-time work, to do care in childcare, etc., environmental factors, and also for both of them, as a fundamentally socialist measure that it begins to chip away the value of capitalism. There has been criticisms against that, that actually it does nothing for gender inequality, that a wider, to use phrase term, a wider deconstruction of gender is needed, that actually you need socialism to do it rather than it leading to socialism or that it justifies uh, wider inequalities. But for both of them, but particularly for Levitas, the thing that's interesting about the basic income is that if we can't have it and if we think the basic income is bad, why? What are the problems? What's standing in our way? Should we get rid of those things standing in the way? Or are they inevitable? These are the types of questions this utopian perspective forces us to encounter. And I think I broadly agree with Levitas. I think sociologists have been too reluctant to recognise the sort of utopian elements resting 
behind their critiques of society. That's actually a good uh, a good point to consider the uh, the closing parts of the book, uh, both the engagement with public sociology and the example of, of Bourdieu as a as a public sociology, but also the wider question actually about what what sociology is actually for. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the final chapter for inclusion, as you say, is on public sociology. And I think, you know, what's particularly interesting about public sociology is the way in which, in many ways, the book traces the history of public sociology. You know, all the writers we've discussed thus far were engaging publicly in some way or another, whether that be in what Burrow calls traditional public sociology, a very top-down process of, you know, appearing in the media, writing accessible books and so on, or whether it be the organic sociology, which Barrowboy sees as new, but actually has a long history of people engaging in social movements. But of course, public sociology has become an idea, which is linked to Michael Barrowboy. And I talk about the criticisms which have been offered of the content of the idea there. And whereas some people say, well, actually, all these people who have been public sociologists are mistaken because sociology doesn't have consensus. We can't say, it's one of the examples, we can't say what causes crime. So if we become public, we're just going to show disagreements in the subject. We're not going to be taken seriously. We need to spend more time working to find consensus answers, then we become public. But some of the other critiques are more are in sympathy with the idea of being public. But so the problem with Barrowway is it's sort of collapsing a political position with public sociology. So Barrowway says one thing that marks out public sociology is being on the side of civil society, being pro-democracy, to pick on what I said earlier, rather than on the side of markets or the state, which have become increasingly strong. Sociology alone has this element. At one point, he argues that public sociology would have to have some idea of democratic socialism behind it. Well, why do you have to be anti-markets? Why do you have to be democratically socialist to be a sociologist? Why are these things important? Can't you have a variety of different political positions? Can't you be a conservative? public sociologists can't be a liberal public sociologist and also some have argued that this perspective seems to marginalize the fact that public sociology has historically been done by those marginal to the discipline a good example of this is socialists for women in society which is an american organization which annually is given out an award for what would now be called public sociology and you mentioned bourdieu and i pick out bourdieu because it's a very interesting case because bourdieu's the last sort of 10 15 years of bourdieu's life are devoted more and more to this public political activity, very left-wing, very critical of globalisation of the EU, advocating a sort of trade union movement across Europe. So in some ways he seems to fit Barrowway's position, but of course Bourdieu is doing this partly, he argues, because most intellectuals, of whom he singles out some sociologists, Giddens, Beck, Terrain, Baudrillard, have sort of been pro-markets. They've sort of overlooked the way in which neoliberalism has expanded. And in many ways... He says, particularly in the case of Giddens and Beck, have sort of encouraged this process. So actually, part of his public engagement is a response to what he sees as an insufficient defence of civil society against markets from other sociologists. So it really begins to problematise it. And that then brings me to uh, what you were talking about in the conclusion and the question of what sociology is for. Do you want me to discuss that now? That would be a, a great way to, uh, to finish up, actually, because it's... Uh... I think it's both a kind of an important but also a provocative question that you uh, you close the book with. Yeah, so one of the things I try to do very 
very consciously in this book is before the conclusion, where I'd like to think my own voice does come through and offer an argument about what I think, most of the book is devoted not to defending particular alternatives against other ones, but really trying to go into what I was saying at the start of the podcast about how I came to write the book, to really having this book be a sort of repository where all these arguments are included and people can come and sort of judge on their own merits whether they agree with Burkheim or boys or me. But the conclusion, I do try to make my own view very clear and actually say, I sort of end the book in this question of what is sociology for? And here I sort of mean for as in pro, like what is sociology pro? What is it in favour of? And again, I think that one of the things I've discovered more and more reading this book is the ready ideas sociologists have. The sociologists have ready ideas that, you know, we are broadly left wing, we're in favour of things I've talked about there, hope, uh, we're against oppression, we're pro-equality, these various different types of things. Well, but when you get to the question of what society does that mean, what are we actually in favour of, what should be done, um, to quote Lenny, um, then actually there's lots of different answers that I've already hit upon the way in which some of the alternatives discussed in this book are simply incompatible. You cannot put Mead and Mannheim together. You cannot put Durkheim and Marx together. They're completely incompatible. And this leads me to claim in the book that normatively sociology is not for anything, that there's nothing that sociology is innately for or pro. I think that really when you get down to what is sociology for and what is it pro, the thing I talk about now as I quote uh, my first sociology lecture, Ken Plummer, who says that, you know, social life is awesome. He says that's the key thing that unites sociologists, that we become aware of the various interests and elements of social life. It's ups, it's downs, it's positives, it's negatives, it's a form of cooperation, but it also has forms of power and inequality and oppression. And actually it's these, the awareness of these particular types of things, which has led sociologists to discuss alternatives and think about different types of societies. But we can't then seek to impose a sort of, front of that term, a party line on sociology, that it, it's not there. And to pretend one is just doesn't make any sense. We should recognise that although for reasons I think I've sketched in the book, sociology often does come to discuss alternatives. There's no consensus about what that alternative society should be, that there's a large amount of diversity instead. Is that question um, what you're working on now, kind of moving forward away from the book? Or have you, you know, have you kind of settled your accounts with social theory for alternative societies and now you're doing something completely different? Um, I think this will probably always be with me. My PhD um, was titled A Libertarian Socialist Critique of Political Sociology of Late Modernity. The title was long and pretentious, much like the PhD itself. And I then published that as my first book, and that was fundamentally about saying, here's a vision of libertarian socialism, which I think can solve the problems of late modernity. And I think that this question of, you know, sociological alternatives will probably always be with me. It will be something that I'm particularly interested in. I've done work on it elsewhere. But I think one of the things that this book has encouraged me, and hopefully it might encourage anyone who reads it to do, is be a bit more interested in the history of sociology, where the discipline comes from, the type of things it's done, and the various perspective it has embodied. Because I think the value of being aware of that history is it makes us a lot more careful when we make contemporary claims about what sociology is for or what sociology is about, which we do all the time, you know, sociologists famously in the looking bunch of, you know, nothing, nothing sociologists like more than discussing sociology. And I think that's fine. You know, I haven't necessarily got a problem with that, but I think we need to be aware of the different types of histories that work here. And I, really that's something that I'm become even more interested in from reading this book because 
there's amazing stories, you know, of just people who have done, like George Herbert mean this book, but various other people have done just amazing things, which I think are really inspiration for contemporary sociology, but have often been overlooked. And by the same token, there are really troubling stories about sociologists' connection to empire, to fascism, to forms of racism, and so on and so forth, which as sociologists, I think collectively, we also need to be aware of. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking about Social Theory for Alternative Societies, published by Palgrave Macmillan, by Dr. Matt Dawson.